countries never wanted to see that kind of sustained big war destruction ever again. And the hope was that nuclear weapons in the magnitude of their destructiveness would actually be the key to preventing war. Hello, and welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, an entirely student-run podcast from Johns Hopkins University. I'm your host, Lauren, and I'm joined today by Amanda and Indy. You're listening to the fourth episode of the Foreign Policy Toolbox series, where we unravel the mysteries of the most important concepts and policies in international affairs. Today, we will discuss the basics of nuclear arms control. What countries have nuclear weapons? What are the major nuclear treaties that have governed global nuclear policy? We will also discuss the dangers of a nuclear North Korea, the Iran nuclear deal, and the threat of India-Pakistan nuclear warfare. We are joined today by guest Ms. Rebecca Herzman. Rebecca Herzman is Director of the Project on Nuclear Issues and Senior Advisor with the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. A leading expert on nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons policy, global health security, and crisis management, Ms. Herzman leads the preeminent national program designed to develop next-generation nuclear expertise. So thank you for joining us today, Ms. Herzman. Thank you for having me. What countries have nuclear weapons, and what is the global framework for what countries can and can't have nuclear weapons? Well, presently, we think of nine countries as having nuclear weapons. Five of those countries are what are called the permanent five. Um, That is enshrined in the way we think about the UN Security Council and also the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Those five countries who are acknowledged and recognized as nuclear weapon states include the United States, Russia, China, France, and the United Kingdom. In addition, um, we have four additional countries that uh, we call sort of uh, nuclear capable or nuclear armed. Um, That includes North Korea, Pakistan, India, and Israel. So why do we have a framework of non-proliferation in place? Well, when you think back to the 1960s, there was a famous speech by then President Kennedy, where he talked about, you know, the considerable concern that if trajectories continued as they saw in that time in the height of the Cold War, that the world could be looking at a situation where we could have 25 or 30 nuclear armed states and imagine kind of the the dangers that could ensue from that many nuclear armed countries. So the world pretty much got together uh, in one of the most universal and important treaties ever established um, and created the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And that treaty basically set up a compact between the nuclear armed countries, um, the nuclear weapon states, those P5 that I mentioned and uh, the many, many other countries that agreed to not pursue and to not obtain nuclear weapons. And this compact had several you know, pieces to it. Nuclear armed, uh, nuclear weapon states would have a responsibility to help other countries get the peaceful uses and civilian benefits of uh, nuclear technology, that the nuclear weapon states would agree to um, 
work towards a long-term process of disarmament, that this kind of inequality enshrined in the treaty wouldn't be permanent, and that all of those countries would work to pursue to ensure that additional countries didn't acquire nuclear weapons. So it was kind of a a kind of complex agreement um, to manage a long-term vision towards a, a world without nuclear weapons while acknowledging that as long as those weapons exist, we need to sort of a system to prevent the rampant proliferation. So one of the things that you just talked about um, is this dilemma that the international community has always had of stopping the proliferation of nuclear weapons, but allowing peaceful usage of nuclear energy um, and other forms of things. So I was curious what are kind of the checks and balances in place to discourage this usage, this proliferation of nuclear weapons while encouraging the use of nuclear energy or other, uh, other nuclear materials? Well, exactly. Well, this was the other great thing that the NPT helped to develop, which is it created an organization called the IAEA. And, uh, and the IAEA is really charged with providing all of the technical support to countries and to facilitate across this idea of how do you help countries get useful and important um, medical and other peaceful uses from nuclear technology while not um, necessarily developing those technologies for military or other illicit purposes. So the IAEA really facilitates that through what are called um, safeguards agreements. And so countries come to agreements, work with the IAEA, commit to um, being transparent in the way they develop their nuclear industries and nuclear capabilities or nuclear energy, and, um, and to allow those things to be safeguarded to demonstrate that they cannot or will not be used for military purposes. So that's really the mechanism by which it, 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 works out in the international community. And I will say I've visited the IAEA before, and it's often kind of underappreciated, I think, here in the U.S., how much they do across the world, especially in the developing world, to help um, provide some of this technical support um, and the benefits of the peaceful uses of of nuclear technology, including in things like agriculture. Um, So it is a really important part of what they do and a way of making um, all of the countries benefit by agreeing to the NPT. So we've kind of talked about the broader current issue of nuclear weapons, but could you provide our listeners with kind of a brief history of the development of nuclear weapons and power? Sure. Now, of course, this is a lot to cram into a brief podcast. I'll try to kind of hit a few highlights. But of course, you had, um, as World War II was coming to a close, the United States had developed nuclear weapons as part of the famous Manhattan Project. And those two weapons were then used as part of the closing days of the Pacific campaign in World War II. Um, And those were the weapons that were used in Hiroshima Hiroshima and in Nagasaki. Um, All in the space of that short period of time, the entire world witnessed both the incredible power and magnitude and and extraordinary destructiveness of of nuclear weapons um, and 
almost an immediate sense of competition to figure out who else would acquire these capabilities, how would they be used in future warfare, and how would such destructive capabilities be managed and controlled? Um, it sort of was just sort of a shock to see it all all happen uh, in that time frame. From there, of course, other countries led by the Soviet Union at the time sought to compete and acquire similar capabilities. And over the next couple of decades, through the course of what we now call the Cold War, you had this competitive arms racing of countries, principally the United States and the Soviet Union, but later on uh, China and others feeling compelled to develop these weapons and to develop their own understanding of of what we now call deterrence. Um, And with that, let me just say deterrence really meant in the context of nuclear deterrence, a new way of thinking about warfare and more importantly, of preventing warfare. Um, On the heels of the Second World War, countries never wanted to see that kind of sustained big war destruction ever again. And the hope was that nuclear weapons in the magnitude of their destructiveness would actually be the key to preventing war. And that would be because by having weapons of such massive destructiveness and being able to use them under a wide variety of circumstances, that you could change the calculus that countries use when they think about war that they would look at the possibility of attacking a country like the United States that had nuclear weapons and decide that it was never worth the risk, that it would be never worth the risk to attack the United States because with it could become a response that could be world ending. And the hope was that this would actually mean that big wars would no longer be fought. Of course, then you get to a fairly competitive situation and countries started to pursue nuclear weapons. And our couple of things happened. Our understanding of deterrence became more complex, more nuanced, more studied, more academics reading into how to actually do this. How do we think about this? And a lot of famous history of nuclear policy, um, but also a lot of challenges to it as new countries came to develop those weapons. And we had to think about how to proceed Um, And that really has been what's guided. It's evolved since then, how we think about using nuclear weapons, how we think about deterring the use of nuclear weapons. But the fundamental principle is one of changing the calculus such that the risks of war are so enormous that you persuade a country never to actually engage in war. So you've discussed the tremendous impact that seeing the United States um, drop the two nuclear weapons on Japan had at the end of the Second World War on, you know, now the way currently that we view nuclear weapons and nuclear proliferation as potentially catastrophic. So since the end of the Second World War, could you give our listeners a brief rundown of the major nuclear arms control treaties that have governed governed nuclear um, policy globally? Sure. Well, like I say, you know, that the central element of everything is the NPT, the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. Um, but subsequent to that, and as I sort of described this period of the Cold War, where there was a sense that uh, the United States and the then Soviet Union were sort of competing and developing thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons in multiple delivery systems from 
you know, smaller, uh, smaller so-called tactical nuclear weapons that were envisioned for battlefield use to the most strategic megaton um, multiple reentry vehicle type weapons. And there became a realization that this just couldn't continue. There was no way that this kind of rampant arms racing would ever really be able to be sufficiently stable. And you needed to bring in some ability to control that. And really at the heart of that, where that started was the Cuban Missile Crisis, where um, the United States and the Soviet Union came perilously close uh, to uh, during the Kennedy administration to the potential use of, of nuclear weapons in a real sort of uh, standoff. Um, and following that, there were the engagement of a number of what we would call now kind of nuclear risk reduction measures. Those were hotlines and forms of communication and types of transparency that tried to sort of take the temperature down a little bit and help us not to make mistakes or have miscalculations and misunderstandings that could have such extraordinary consequences. As the Cold War continued and you got into um, the 70s and 80s, there was even further understanding that we actually needed to come to various agreements, bilateral agreements, to try to exchange um, numbers and and, uh, limits on some of our nuclear weapons systems. Um, Several important treaties uh, culminating in what was then the START Treaty, uh, which expired in 2010, I believe, and was uh, followed up by what is now called the New START Treaty, which took those limitations on deployed warheads, which are now limited at 1,500 Uh, each for Russia and the United States, and on what we call launchers or delivery systems to 700. Um, And there's some flexibility to how countries use it. That sort of became the centerpiece. There were other things like the ABM Treaty, uh, the um, Intermediate Range Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty, um, various others, but these kind of central limits of, of start and new start were the center you might have heard about this in the news recently, because as recent, you know, just in this past week, um, you, uh, the incoming president, President Biden, had a conversation with uh, uh, President Putin, and they have uh, discussed the need to come to an expeditious extension of the New START Treaty for five more years, and it looks like that will happen. Yeah, so thanks for bringing us right to the New START Treaty, because that is our next question about it. So... Just as a little bit of you know background about the new START treaty, how has this agreement between President Biden and President Putin differed from the Trump administration's um, rhetoric and stance towards the new START agreement, and you know the Trump administration's uh, desire to bring China into this agreement? Can you sort of discuss um, those different factors and why the Biden administration did not pursue that same route of trying to add China into the agreement? Yes, so. I think while um, many people really do support arms control and the continuation of arms control agreements such as New START, it's not like those treaties are without controversy. Now, importantly, the Trump administration acknowledged um, that both the United States and Russia had remained in compliance with the New START treaty. 
You may recall that um, the United States had withdrawn from the INF Treaty, another very important arms control treaty, um, especially in Europe, um, because of Russian noncompliance. Russia was developing systems that were not compliant with their obligations under the INF Treaty, and uh, the United States started to withdraw. And many voices inside the Trump administration were fairly longtime skeptics of arms control in general as an effective means of, of engaging and improving international stability, and in particular were skeptics about Russian compliance and um, their good faith participation in these agreements. So you had, on the one hand, an underlying skepticism among some important advisors. On the other hand, you had other important advisors in the Trump administration who were very focused on China and China's growing strategic challenge to the United States and the complete absence of arms control arrangements with China. Those two forces came together in this desire to try to what we call multilateralize New START. Unfortunately, from my perspective, I think that was less, never really going to become a realistic prospect. It was a bilateral treaty that wasn't well tailored to China. And I think a lot of people feared that this tactic of saying New START needs to be multilateralized was what we might call a poison pill. You know, the sort of thing you put in when you want to just sort of torpedo something overall. So the treaty skeptics, you know, could get something um, by kind of not having to proceed with the treaty and uh, the China hawks, so to speak, um, would get something by really trying to push the issue with China. Um, At the end of the day, it looks like the Trump administration um, did try to make some progress in terms of providing some additional agreements between the two countries. Uh, You may have heard them talk about um, coming to an agreement on a cap on overall warheads. Um, That would include warheads that are not currently part of New START. Um, They are what we call um, substrategic warheads. But that part of the agreement never closed. Uh, They never actually completed it. It's a little bit like kind of agreeing you want to buy or sell a house, but never actually agreeing on the price. Uh, In that sense, they never really agreed on the verification. That deal sort of fell apart. And the Biden administration came in and with mere weeks uh, until the treaty would expire, there seemed an interest on both sides to just complete a simple five-year extension without um, preconditions and then go about the business of figuring out how to negotiate additional arms control agreements. So our kind of last section of this podcast is kind of contemporary case studies, the big things that people might see in the news about nuclear weapons, and they just read the headlines and um, don't really understand the issue fully. Obviously, we can only go into each of them very briefly. But the first one I wanted to bring up was uh, uh, a nuclear North Korea. So since acquiring nuclear weapons, nuclear Korea has really been at the forefront of geopolitical security threats. Um, I guess, what are Kim Jong-un's nuclear goals and how dangerous really are they? Well, that really is the million dollar question, right? Um, You know, North Korea is one of the most closed societies. Power is entirely concentrated um, in really in the hands of, of of a single individual. 
um, and our ability to really know Kim Jong-un's mind and how he thinks about deterrence and what sort of policies he shapes his thinking and what kind of strategy um, guides the way he thinks about the use or employment of nuclear weapons. Well, those are big, important, and largely unknown questions. Um, What we do know is that North Korea, despite all kinds of efforts by the international community, has over the last few decades, continue to develop an increasingly effective nuclear weapons arsenal. They began testing in 2006. They've conducted multiple tests over the years since. They have proceeded to develop longer range and more accurate delivery systems um, such that we really don't have much choice uh, today than to think about North Korea as a nuclear armed state, that we have to think about deterrence, we have to think about strategic stability with them. At the same time, we have to continue to work towards a set of policies that would hopefully, over time, result in the denuclearization of North Korea. And we kind of saw the Trump administration start to do this with um, their negotiations with the North Korea North Korea weapons program. Unfortunately, those negotiations, at least as far as I read, like didn't really go anywhere. So how do you think that the Biden administration might approach uh, a nuclear North Korea um, and how could they make a more successful strategy? You know, you all are studying international relations. And I think one of the most important lessons to learn for everyone, every student of international relations and um, every practitioner is humility. If a problem is easy to solve, someone would have already solved it. And that is really one of the challenges with a problem like North Korea, right? Administration after administration over decades have tried to solve this problem. And each one comes in, criticizes the prior one, and says, they can do better, look at me. And then what happens? You know what? It's really hard. It's a difficult problem. It's a difficult country to work with. And you've got to figure out how are you going to proceed. And it's difficult to set realistic expectations and try to come up with a policy that's manageable. So I think that was part of what we, the lesson we just keep learning about fire and fury and all the escalatory rhetoric and all of the ideas, we're going to get a deal and this is going to be easy for us. And then none of it happens. Every step of the way, North Korea keeps actually improving its nuclear weapons capability. So first of all, we need to approach this problem with a little bit of humility and a little bit of recognition that we may not get everything we want here. And so we're going to have to figure out what are the most important requirements. For me, I put at the top of that list, how do we stabilize this problem and reduce the risk of nuclear use? How do we have better transparency so we can understand the risks and so that Kim Jong-un can better understand the risks of his own provocative behavior? It's a dangerous time when countries are nuclear-armed early on in the early stages of, of, of being nuclear weapon states because they haven't totally figured out how to manage effectively such tremendous power. 
And in some ways, the international community is going to have to help North Korea do that, help North Korea be responsible, even as we try to come up with a pathway that says, you know, you have a lot of other things your country needs economically, politically, diplomatically, rejoining the world. And at the end of the day, those nuclear weapons aren't going to help you do that. So let's try to think of another path. Great. On top of that and North Korea, there have also been serious talks about the U.S. and Iran rejoining or renegotiating the Iran nuclear deal or the JCPOA. In your opinion, what are the chances of this happening and what has really changed since the Trump administration first exited the deal in 2018? Well, my point about humility certainly applies here as well, right? Um, if it was easy, someone would have done it. That was a JCPOA was a hard fought, extremely difficult, but on balance, highly beneficial international agreement. It's so easy to just throw it out and say, I can do better. But as you can see, as the time has gone by, that didn't happen. Now the problem we face is it's not so simple just to rewind the clock. On the one hand, I think many people want a simple, kind of like this new start, simple extension. I don't think there's a simple, just get back into the JCPOA solution. A lot of water has now gone under the bridge. So it's going to be very tricky to figure out how to do that. You'll have to walk back a series of escalatory steps that both you know, sides have taken. You would have to do some rebuilding of trust because countries don't want to engage in negotiations if they believe parties are simply going to walk away. Um, and we have to still wrestle with some of the very difficult malign behaviors of Iran that make coming to these agreements um, they were, it was difficult and hard in the past, will only be harder now. The politics of dealing, the domestic um, international politics uh, dealing with Iran have not gotten easier. And Congress will have a big voice and Congress is closely divided. And this is the type of issue they will get pretty animated about. So it's going to be very, very difficult. It will not be the one week, one day um, executive action. We saw a new start. It's going to be one of the big challenges for the administration. So speaking of heightened tensions between countries and sort of a history of hostility, um, I just wanted to bring us to our last sort of case study in this section, which is between India and Pakistan. So India and Pakistan evidently are both declared nuclear powers. And if many, many have said that if nuclear war was to break out, it would likely occur along their border. So can you explain to our listeners the current regional tensions in this area with regards to nuclear weapons and the likelihood of this catastrophic scenario. Right. Well, going back to the period of uh, in which Pakistan um, uh, was, you know, kind of became a nation and uh, you had the sort of the redrawing of the geographic boundaries um, between India and Pakistan. Um, there've never been agreement on uh, those boundaries, especially in the area uh, known as Kashmir, where there's been these long-standing, serious disputes about um, where the line of demarcation belongs, and that has led to this long simmering, occasionally flaring into to war um, tension along uh, India and Pakistan, and the, a deep sense of animosity. Um, and, and political resentment 
um, that pervades most aspects of national life in this uh, their bilateral dynamic. So added to that, you had um, India early on uh, in the 1970s tested its first nuclear uh, weapon, what they called a peaceful nuclear explosion. And subsequent to that, Pakistan was quite determined and for several decades De- you know, determinedly pursued a nuclear weapons program until it felt it could counter. Um, in the late 90s, there were a series of tests back and forth between the two countries as they both sought to prove that they had nuclear weapons capabilities and that they were now determined to bring those capabilities into the open and to engage in a much more um, overt uh, deterrence dynamic between the two of them. And that's where we sit. There've been a series of crises now, uh, among them, the kind of famous uh, cargo crisis, but there've been others, including a pretty big dust up about a year ago, year and a half ago, I think, um, over, uh, some, some activities going across the border. And in all of these times, there's been this concern that there would be, um, a rise in nuclear tensions and the risk of uh, a potential nuclear war. It hasn't happened, but it has gotten dangerously close. And often it's taken the intervention of external parties, including the United States, to try to um, help both countries find an off-ramp short of um, a greater intensifying war. But until the underlying problems are solved and when the instrument, military instruments seem to be the primary go-to as a way of resolving these conflicts as they surface. We're going to be struggling with this high-risk dynamic along the India-Pakistan border for a long time to come. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ms. Herzman. It was amazing talking to you. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited when people want to learn about nuclear issues and the history of nuclear policy. And uh, so I hope you're interested and want to you know, learn and study more about the topic. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.